Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser. Today is our 50th episode of the podcast. It's a huge milestone that has taken two years to reach, and I may or may have not teared up a little bit at the end of the interview you will hear shortly. To celebrate 50 episodes and $100,000 to charity with you, I am announcing our very first All the Wiser Pay It Forward giveaway. We know you're freaking awesome, so it's a safe bet that you know other awesome people. And we are giving you the opportunity to surprise one of them. It could be a friend, spouse, neighbor, a parking attendant, waiter, the IT guy or girl, or your grandmother. Anyone you know who may be in need of some love, celebration, a pick-me-up, or just a big old thank you. All you need to do is head on over to our website, allthewiserpodcast.com. There's a link in the show notes. And on the homepage, you'll see a place to share your nominee's name and a few reasons why you would love to surprise and celebrate them. On Wednesday, May 5th, we will announce our deserving winner and the person who nominated them on our last episode of season one and surprise them with a $200 Visa gift card to treat themselves to something special. So super simple. Think of someone who's awesome. Go to our website, allthewiserpodcast.com. Gush about them there and tune in on May 5th. Today's interview is with Scott Harrison. Scott is somebody I've been wanting to interview for years. And after listening to our conversation today, I think you will know why. Today, Scott is a father of two young children, a husband, and the CEO of Charity Water. In a not-too-distant past, he was one of the most famous party promoters in New York City. A life fueled with booze, drugs, cigarettes, pornography, and a Rolodex of the rich and the famous. Scott's story reminded me of the times when we go through stretches in our own life where we're caught up in the day-to-day, doing the job, the thing, the lifestyle, without ever stopping to think and actually question if your life, your job, or the people you are spending time with are truly aligned with your values and the person you want to be in the world. Years ago, Scott hit rock bottom after an all-night bender came to the realization that he felt morally and spiritually bankrupt. This personal reckoning would change everything in Scott's life, and it would eventually change the world. He's an example of the power we all possess to radically change our lives and live a life with intention and purpose. Here's today's episode and my 50th All the Wiser interview with Scott Harrison. 
Scott, good morning and welcome to All the Wiser. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I always like to have our guests introduce themselves. So how would you introduce yourself? Well, my name is Scott Harrison, and I lead an organization called Charity Water, and I've been working for the last 15 years to try to bring clean and safe drinking water to every human being on the planet. And currently, uh, about 785 million people away from, from that, uh, that being mission accomplished. But it's, it's been an amazing journey, and our nonprofit organization has raised uh, about half a billion dollars now, and we've helped 12 million people. So it's, it's a, a small dent, about 165th of the work that needs to be done. But uh, we're, we're really hopeful about the future and, and seeing a day when everybody has clean water to drink. Well, it's a small and deeply impactful dent, and congratulations. It's, you're making a difference in the world. And I want to go back to your childhood and sort of the beginning of your story that led you to where you are today and your work in the world, which we, we just touched on. Tell me about the backdrop of your childhood. Well, it was a bizarre childhood. Um, I guess it started out very normal. I was born in Philadelphia uh, into a middle-class family. My dad was a businessman, worked in an electrical engineering factory, led a small cap company. My mom was a writer and they had me and moved to kind of small town in South Jersey to get closer to his job so that he would commute less and would be able to spend more time with me and hopefully have a, a big family. And I was four years old when we moved, and we moved in the dead of winter into, uh, I've seen pictures, a very ugly gray house at the end of a cul-de-sac that was advertised as energy efficient. And my parents were very frugal, so they, they, that, that would have uh, been important to them. And unfortunately, our energy efficient house that we moved into in the dead of winter also had a carbon monoxide gas leak that no one knew about. So we move in and my dad and I start experiencing some health symptoms. My mom starts not feeling well. Uh, and on New Year's Day, 1980, she walks across the bedroom and she collapses unconscious. And she was the, the canary in the coal mine, so to speak. And we took her to the hospital. This led to a series of blood tests. And they found massive amounts of carbon monoxide in her bloodstream. So her, she became an invalid really from that, that time on, uh, what happened was her immune system just shut down and she became allergic to the world, would be the best way to describe it in, in layman's terms. Everything made her sick from this point on. Uh, she would be allergic to perfume or soap or car fumes. She was allergic to the print from books. And the cure for this was to just live in isolation. So we actually wound up preparing a room for her in a tile-covered bathroom, and the room was covered in tinfoil. And she slept on a, an old army cot that was washed in baking soda 20 different times to try to get out any scent or any smell. And so all this meant family planning stopped. Uh, and at four years old, I went into a caregiver role. Uh, which really lasted for the rest of childhood, helping to take care of mom, helping to do the cooking and the cleaning. Uh, she had very bizarre diets because food made her sick as well. And yeah, I mean, I guess it was, it, was, it, it was the only thing I knew, but 
looking back on it, a pretty bizarre, abnormal childhood. I, I will say, you know, one of the things probably important, my parents had a very deep and authentic Christian faith. So that meant I was brought up in the church uh, playing piano uh, every Sunday in, in Sunday school. And I was the good kid who didn't smoke. I didn't drink. I didn't cuss. I didn't sleep around. I took care of my mom. That was childhood. And how do you think, I mean, it's easy to look back and say how it shaped you. I'm sure you've done some thinking about that. But I'm curious at the time, especially as a teenager, which is pivotal, right, for all of us, that chapter, who were you on the inside versus who you were on the outside? I mean, how your parents in the world were experiencing you versus how you were experiencing yourself. I think, you know, at, at 18, basically, I woke up and said, okay, um, my turn, my turn. I don't have to take care of mom anymore. I don't have to do what anybody says anymore. I don't have to follow the rules of the church or religion. Um, I'm going to have some fun. And I moved to New York City. And I stumbled really upon a remarkable job in New York City called a nightclub promoter. And I realized if you were going to rebel, I mean, at least you should do it in style and you should party uh, while doing it. And I wanted to become the king of New York City nightlife. I wanted to be at the top of the food chain, uh, the guy standing in the DJ booth, spraying champagne over the the dancing, you know, swarming crowd. And uh, that's what I pursued for the next 10 years, uh, trying to be the, the king of New York City nightlife. Which you were. And obviously, in spite of its darkness and void, <laughs> I'm sure within you, in hindsight, I, I think it's something that people would be fascinated about, right? Because it's so foreign and, as you said, sexy in a sense, right? But what is like a day in the life, 24 hours of, of you at that time, what does it look like? Oh, well, this has been a while, but it is it is fun and I remember it, unfortunately, too well. So at dinner at 10 at a trendy restaurant and it would be our job to bring a bunch of models to the restaurant and we would find guys, many of them who worked in finance or hedge funds, who would pay for everything. So imagine a 20-person dinner that would cost $10,000. Uh, then we'd head over to the club somewhere around midnight and the doors had opened at the club at 10, but nobody, nobody would ever go before midnight. And we would be early in the club. You know, we'd walk up to a VIP room. There'd be a table reserved. We might be expecting Puffy to come in at the table next to us or Jay-Z, uh, the other table next to us. You know, whatever celebrities might be in New York City that night, because this would have been the hottest club at any given moment in New York City. And our job was to bring the people, was to make the club look amazing, uh, was to bring both kind of the most beautiful people who were cheap and wouldn't pay for anything, and then to bring the rich who wanted to be around the beautiful people who would actually put down their Black American Express card and walk away spending $18,000 on liquor, uh, most of which they, they didn't drink, uh, but they you know, provided that for, for others. So... Then we would uh, leave the club around 3.30 and often we would head to an after-hours joint, some you know illegal kind of hall in the wall where you would knock on a secret door in the East Village and the party would continue. And that's when it would get a lot of darker, a lot darker. So there'd be 
you know, what are you doing at four in the morning to, to stay up? <laughs> um, lots of, lots of things that, that nobody should be. I remember often stumbling home at 11 or 12 the next day, um, kind of, you know, blinking as you come out of this place in the sunlight and just almost surprised that other people are on their lunch hour. <laughs> and this is the end of a, of a 10 hour day. And are you doing it on repeat? I mean, is this every night? I'm doing this a few nights a week. You know, there were the hard partying nights and then there were the other nights that were, you know, let's go to a movie or, you know, a little more boring. But, you know, you're on a, a night shift, so you're not going to bed before two or three in the morning. And, you know, you're not waking up really before noon. Uh, or, you know, if you go to bed at noon, you're, you're waking up at six or seven o'clock at night and then having to do it all over again. It was a terribly unhealthy lifestyle. And, and the vices, I kind of picked them up slowly over the 10-year run. So it started with smoking, then drinking heavily, then the drugs, then the gambling, you know, then the the pornography and and, and just, you know, a real kind of degenerate lifestyle. Um, but the crazy thing is our lives looked really glamorous on the, the outside. And we were flying to Fashion Week in Paris and Milan and we were sitting, we had great seats at the shows and uh, the, the models and the celebrities and the fashion designers were coming to the after parties that we were hosting. We were jumping you know, on private planes to fly to uh, Buzios, Brazil, or Punta del Esta in, in Uruguay. And you know, all, the, all the while, you know, at least I can only speak personally, but I was just rotting inside, you know, sinking deeper and darker into despair, really, uh, into a, a soul-sucking hedonistic, sycophantic existence. And I've heard you say, you know, you get to the point where you realize that you are spiritually and morally bankrupt. And I believe I've heard you say there was there was a moment, which again was after this sort of 24-hour party when you have this realization. Yeah. That was probably you you knew within you, right? But this is the moment where you accept it and say, I'm going to change. Can you tell me about that? That moment of realizing this isn't who I want to be. Yeah. So, you know, right before that, uh, I'd started having some health issues and they were they were as bizarre perhaps as as my mom's. And I just remember one day half of my body went numb. <laughs> and, you know, maybe people are listening saying like, no wonder. I mean, like, did no you just shit. describe yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, no wonder he's having some health issues. Um, but, you know, I, I, I went to NYU doctors and I got the MRIs and you know, my first thought was I had some terrible brain tumor and, uh, or, or some, you know, incurable disease and, and they couldn't find anything wrong with me. The MRIs, the CT scans, the, you know, all the sensors that they hooked up to my body. But what was really important about that was I was kind of faced with my mortality for, for the first time. And I had been running so fast and so hard away from ever stopping to contemplate life or, you know, where I was. Um, I'd just been running after the party. And, you know, there's, there's never enough. So there was something about the health issues that, that was this clarifying moment that said, oh my gosh, like what if I did die in the next few weeks. I mean, what would my life mean? I mean, my tombstone might actually read, here lies a man who got a million people wasted. They would really, you know, okay, maybe I took care of my mom as a kid, but that was a distant memory. And, you know, it really started this process of 
soul searching, uh, saying, okay, um, there's nothing wrong with it. I don't think I'm going to die, but I should probably think about life a little more with a little more maturity now that I'm 28. So then I went straight to South America and it was a very decadent uh, two week trip. We had rented this giant house and there were servants and there were horses and there was a yacht that came with the house. And my girlfriend was crushing it at the time with her modeling career. And, uh, you know, it was kind of the the top we were going to. I was with people who were playing $10,000 hands of blackjack at the casino. And there was a party that happened over New Year's Eve. And I remember, you know, wanting to go to bed. I probably tried to go to bed at 10 or 11. And I woke up at like, I want to say it was two or three in the afternoon. And the party was still going on and people were still drunk and doing drugs. And I just wanted the music to stop. I mean, it was, it just felt so unhealthy. And look, I I think, you know, there was just something about this moment where I had this cathartic realization that, you know, I'd hit bottom. It was like, you know, the game of musical chairs. And for the first time, the music stopped and I found I had nowhere to sit. And I'm just looking around the circle, kind of displaced. So that that led to some questioning. Um, I remember going back, you know, the first thing I kind of reached back for was my Christian faith. And did I believe any of this? And, you know, did I believe in heaven and hell? And if I did, I certainly wasn't going to heaven. I mean, you know, and I asked myself the question, I said, what would the opposite of my life look like? What would it look like to do a 180 degree turn? Could I start over at 28? Could I, could I find my way home? I mean, just to maybe borrow from that prodigal son story, you know, I, I kind of found myself in that pig pen <laughs> so far away from the foundation of morality, the foundation of spirituality that my parents had brought me up with, uh, maybe just the wholesomeness that I had experienced as, as a child. And I wanted to come back to that. I wanted to refine that. And that began a very quick journey to reimagine my life. And, you know, months later, I decided that I was going to sell everything that I owned and I was going to volunteer for one year. I was going to commit one year to humanitarian service and see where that would take me. And, and in a way, this is kind of a, a Christian idea that I've been brought up with, the tithe, where you give one-tenth of, you know, of your money uh, to, to the church and to, to people in need. You know, this was going to be one-tenth of my time. I had spent 10 years selfishly living. Um, I could give one year of service and see where that might lead. And this was a really interesting experience because when I decide to do this, I start applying to the famous humanitarian organizations that I've heard of over the years. Uh, the World Cross, Save the Children, Doctors Without Borders, uh, UNICEF. And, you know, maybe again, to nobody's surprise listening, I'm denied by all these organizations. I mean, nobody wants a, you know, junkie nightclub promoter. Uh, They're all doing serious work. They're serious people. So I was very fortunate. One organization didn't reject me. And they said, if I was willing to pay them $500 a month, and if I was willing to go live in post-war Liberia, West Africa, which at the time was the single poorest country in the world, ranked by, by the United Nations. And this, this group took me on as a volunteer photojournalist. Um, and I had always been a pretty good writer. I was good at English growing up. I wound up actually going to New York University 
and, you know, getting C minuses, but barely passing with a communications degree because my dad had saved up. So I was going part-time while I was in the clubs, just enough to mail him the diploma, which I didn't even see for years. And I kind of dusted off that degree and said, I might have some skills that could be useful. I take pretty good pictures. I'm a pretty good writer and storyteller. Maybe I could do that on this mission. And, you know, I can't tell you how everything changed really in one day when I was walking up the gangway of a 522-foot hospital ship, a mercy ship. This is going to be my home for the next year. So imagine a huge, you know, kind of like a carnival cruise line, you know, or one of the smaller ones, uh, a converted ocean liner that had been gutted and turned into a hospital ship. And this group had sailed this hospital ship up and down the coast of Africa with some of the best doctors and surgeons in the world, all donating their time. And they would just offer free medical services to people who couldn't afford them. And I was going to be documenting everything that happened on the ship. So the night before, I remember going out with a bang. I think I drank eight beers. I smoked two packs of cigarettes, 40 cigarettes. Uh, I stocked up on Nicorette. And I, I vowed to never do this stuff again, to never touch, you know, the Coke or any of that stuff again, to never have another cigarette, to never uh, gamble again, to never look at a pornographic image for the rest of my life. I, I, there was something symbolic about walking off of land, walking up the gangway to a hospital ship and then sailing away to a new continent and a new life and leaving all that crap behind. And I think, you know, I asked you to visualize or, or bring to life that time in New York and the juxtaposition of the two. And you're the perfect person to ask to visualize and bring things to life because you are so visual clearly as the photographer documenting everything that's happening in Liberia and with on the ship. So bring this to life, right? What are you seeing? I mean, I'm so curious, the most beautiful thing you saw and the hardest things you saw. So a small advanced team had posted flyers throughout the country before the ship sailed into, into port. And let me just give you a picture of Liberia at the moment. So it had just come out of a 14-year brutal civil war. And the United Nations had dispatched 14,000 UN peacekeeping troops to pick up the pieces and, and hold the peace from all factions. The ship was coming in in the midst of all of this, in a country that had one doctor for every 50,000 people living there. So one doctor for every 50,000 people. I think in America, we've got one for every 300 of us. Like one out of every 280 or 300 people is a doctor. Okay. So, you know, you can just imagine, you got sick, you were out of luck over the last decade and a half. Now, there was no electricity in the country. There was no running water in the country. There was no sewage system. Uh, there was no mail system. You couldn't mail a letter to anyone in this country. And so we were, we were coming into this medical vacuum. And I remember getting up at five in the morning. I was so excited. I put on my hospital scrubs. I grabbed my two Nikon D1X digital cameras. And, you know, I knew we had 1,500 available surgery slots. So we could hand out 1,500 surgery cards, bring people onto the ship and, and help them. And I will never forget turning the corner and seeing this mob standing outside the stadium in the parking lot, waiting for us to open the doors, more than 5,000 people came for 1,500 slots. And 
there's no happy ending to that story. We wound up sending 3,500 people home without seeing a doctor, without a surgery card. Um, we later learned many of these people had walked for more than a month from neighboring countries with their kids in tow, just hearing that there might be a doctor who could help their child or, or who could help a family member, only just to be too far back in line to be helped. So it was sensory overload, seeing people with missing faces, uh, people who had been burned beyond recognition by rebels during the war who, who would pour hot oil on their faces to disfigure them, who would take children and they would try to fuse their body parts together by burning them. And we would try to disentangle them uh, with these very complicated surgeries. So I, I, there was just no paradigm for, for what I saw. And I had to document all 1,500 patients up close. That was my job. So I saw the most severe suffering and disformity, um, pain. But then I also saw the hope. I saw 1,500 people go through a process of transformation. I saw people... Uh, I remember this one woman named Marguerite and she was in her 20s and she had cataracts and these cataracts were so big you could see them. I mean, they were like white saucers in both eyes and she had no access to a cataract surgery. So she was completely blind. And I remember meeting her and documenting her for the medical library pre-op. And then uh, I remember scrubbing up for her surgery and thinking the surgery took like 25 minutes to remove the cataracts. I remember just thinking, oh my gosh, I could do this. I mean, it's, you know, it was a little slit on two eyes, a tweezers, pulled the cataract out, you know, put in, I guess, a new lens, and then a quick sew and patches on. And, you know, I just remember, I, I can't believe a woman is blind for lack of something so simple. And the next day, I made sure I was there for the moment when they took off the patches to see if the surgery was successful. Um, and, and they had thought, of course, it was, and it was a very trivial procedure. And she was there with, with the nurse, and she was with her sister. And I remember when, she, when we, the nurse takes the patch off, she starts screaming and dancing and crying with joy, and she tackles the nurse and, you know, bowls her over. Then she tackles me as I'm taking pictures, and then she, she hugs her sister. And watching someone get sight, it was just extraordinary. So imagine kind of 1,500 of these stories up close and personal. And I just, I loved everything about it. And the cool thing was I rolled to West Africa with 15,000 people on my club list. So I actually had an audience. You know, I guess today you would call them followers, right? These people were following me from club to club. But I started telling them these stories. I started sending pictures and video of women like Marguerite getting their sight back. And I learned very quickly that the same maybe gift or skills uh, for, for storytelling, again, it was my club is the best, get past the velvet rope and your life has meaning, could be used to tell much more redemptive, important stories that led people to compassion and eventually generosity to give and donate money so we could do more surgeries. And I have heard you speak about this and it's so to imagine it, right? Everyone's like, oh, it's an email from Scott. Like, where am I going tonight? And they're like, what? Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, right? <laughs> like, no, there were some unsubscribes, right? A couple of people are like, take me. I did not sign up for a leprosy colony, you know, in-depth picture story. They're like, I want a model and $10,000 in vodka. Why are you emailing me? <laughs> 
But you know what? You know what I remember? I remember one email from that time. And sure, there were some unsubscribes and there were some, oh my gosh, this is gross. But what I remember was this almost wistful, you know, the email replies were, wow, what you're doing sounds so amazing. I wish I could do something like that someday. I remember someone wrote me once. She said, I'm sitting here at my desk at Chanel headquarters. I'm in a brightly lit room. Tears are streaming down my face. Everybody wants to know what is wrong with me. And I just can't stop thinking about this woman who's my age and the story you just shared. I want to come. I want to go and do this. You know, I want my life to have meaning and purpose. So I think it was, it was both interesting and intriguing. And it caused some people to think like, man, if like the degenerate cokehead club promoter. Yeah, I was just like partying with him four weeks ago, you know, and now he's saving the world. I mean, there was a lot of cynicism too. I remember a couple of people thought I was just doing this to get girls. <laughs> so, you know, there was a whole range of, of experiences. I also think this is what you're touching on, something that was never measured, which was the same void that you felt when people saw that, that maybe they made changes in their life you never knew about, right? Like walked away. Yes. Because that is often, there's no metrics for that because you don't know unless they tell you. So um, yeah, I mean, you utilized that network in such a different way with photography and story, which I think is really beautiful. So you're on Mercy Ships in Liberia. And I've heard you say clearly you're entrepreneurial and creative at heart and a visionary that you have a whole idea, right? I'm going to rebrand. I've never called myself a visionary. <laughs> Just I you hope know, not. Oh my gosh! <laughs> stroking the ego on a you know Thursday morning. Come on, I would never say that. <laughs> All right. Well, I will say it for you. Clearly, you have a vision and you execute on it in a big way. So I call that a visionary. Um, That's kind. Well, it's true. So you have this vision to sort of rethink mercy ships, as I have heard you say, and they're like, "Yeah, not happening." But you learn, obviously, a lot about yourself, a lot about the life and the network you left behind in New York. You also learn something about the world, right? Which you have touched on and the water crisis and what led you to come home to New York and start Charity Water, which I want to talk about. So what is that epiphany of what you learn about the world and what you decide to do about it? So the year ends, and I don't know what's next. So I basically just go back for another year and do the same thing. And it was really on that second year that, okay, well, let me, let me just say there's, there's one other kind of key person really in this. So the chief medical officer on the ship was a man named Dr. Gary Parker. And he was a surgeon from California that had heard about this ship uh, where he could contribute. And he could use uh, his plastic surgery skills to help people who had no access to, to plastic surgery or, or to a surgeon. So he had signed up for three months, like many, many doctors did. And he flew from California. And when I joined the ship uh, at 28 years old, he had been there 21 years. He just never left. His three months turned into 21 years. And he became the chief medical officer of the ship. He never went back to his private practice uh, or the Mercedes 
and he traveled around with the ship uh, up and down the coast of Africa, uh, getting married, raising kids uh, on a small school on the ship who uh, had such an extraordinary experience, right? Meeting so many diverse people and, and experiencing so many countries. But I wanted to spend as much time with him as possible. So I would you know, come up with excuses of why I needed to be in all these different surgeries for my journalistic storytelling. And I would get to spend nine hours in scrubs, standing next to this man, asking him questions about his life as he very methodically and, and fastidiously operated to remove a tumor or, or worked on, you know, the reconstruction of a face. And we developed a relationship. And in the second year, two things happened. One, I, I committed to going off of the ship and getting to really know what it was like living in the rural areas of Liberia, where most of the country didn't live in the cities. They lived in the, the remote parts of the country. And I, I remember having a motorcycle. I bought a motorcycle for 400 bucks uh, so that I had some freedom and I could travel around. And I, I'd go to these villages and I would see human beings drinking water from swamps, brown, green, viscous, bug-filled, diseased water. And there was something about that that was in such comparison to my context of water, because I used to sell Voss water in nightclubs for $10 a bottle. And people wouldn't even open the water. They would just order 10 bottles, let $100 of water sit on the table as they drank champagne and, and vodka instead. You know, it just, it, it came to me so intuitively that if you bathed with diseased water, if you drank diseased water, like maybe that was the source of some of the tumors and so, some of the sickness. And he said, basically, yeah, I know, <laughs> we know. And I came across two, two stats that I remember clearly. One, half of the country didn't have access to clean water. So half of the people living in Liberia, millions of people were drinking dirty water. And according to the World Health Organization, half of the disease in countries like Liberia were because people were drinking dirty, diseased, unsafe water. And I, I, I just remember, you know, kind of showing, processing this with Dr. Gary. And he said, yeah, if you really cared about health, you would just make sure everybody in the world had clean water. You know, you could make a, a huge impact. You know, this is probably my words, but I remember him saying, you could be a doctor to millions and millions of people if you just got them the most basic need for health, if you were able to help them get access to clean water. And there was something so simple about that that at the end of the second year, I came back and said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to work on water. I'm going to work with a very clear mission as long as I can to make sure every single person alive on the planet has clean water to drink. And, you know, as you said, you come back with this clear intention, right, of, of the impact you want to make in the world based on what you've witnessed. And you really disrupt the charity model and the ways in which you do that. You think a lot about transparency. You think about design and beauty, and which I think is incredible. And you said, we're going to tell a story and it's going to be beautiful and well-written and have an aesthetic and people are going to connect with it. And it's so true, right? When you think about how we experience story and how we can connect with people and how we can be inspired and how we can be uplifted. So you were, I think, really, you know, somebody who was at the forefront of that. And then I, the transparency 
piece is critical, right? Because people give their money and they they don't really know where it's going after. And you thought deeply about that and, and you changed that. So how did you do that? What was different about Charity Water when you started it and envisioned it? Well, I think I had the advantage of being 30, completely naive and completely inexperienced when it came to anything in the world of philanthropy or charity. My previous experience had been 10 years of nightclubs and two years as a photojournalist surrounded by a bunch of doctors uh, on a hospital ship in Africa. So I did have this very clear mission of bringing clean water to everybody on earth and figuring out how to best do that. But I also was just talking to everyday people, many of the same people I had been talking to on that 15,000-person email list. So my friends worked at Sephora. They worked at MTV or VH1 at the time. They worked at Chase Bank. And as I was talking to them about my passionate life's mission that I had discovered, I realized so many of them were cynical or, or disenchanted when it came to charity giving. Uh, when it came to, I mean, philanthropy wasn't really a term that, that people were using at the time, you know, small philanthropy. But, you know, they, they just didn't trust charities. And I remember coming across, fortuitously, coming across a USA Today poll that found 42% of Americans said they didn't trust charities. And more recently, NYU Wagner did a study that found 70% of Americans believe charities wasted their money. So I had these kind of two ideas. One was, could I set up the charity with a a very different business model where we could make a promise that 100% of every donation, 100%, whether it was a dollar or $100 or $100,000, would go directly to build water projects that helped people get clean water around the world. And then in a separate bank account, all of the overhead would be raised separately from private donors or board members, or maybe I could figure out how to get a company excited about paying for the overhead, but the public would never pay for the overhead. So the first pillar or idea was this 100% model and taking it so far 15 years ago as, as we do today, where we even pay back credit card fees. So if you went online right now and you gave $100 on your American Express, I would love to get all $100, but I don't. I would get $97 as Amex takes their 3% cut. We actually pay back out of the overhead account that $3, and then we send your full $100 to the field. And the second pillar became proof. What if we just showed people what $100 could do? And we became the first charity uh, in the water space to geolocate every completed water project and to put all of that data on Google Earth and Google Maps. So I said early on, if we, if we manage to get 100 wells funded we're going to put up 100 pictures and satellite images of them so people will know where they are and they know that the money actually reached those villages. But that was really the second pillar. And then the third pillar, you mentioned it, was to to build an epic brand, was to build an imaginative, inspiring, hopeful charity that did not peddle shame and guilt to accomplish getting donations from people. So... You know, I was much more inspired by a Nike philosophy, right? Or, or an Apple philosophy or, or Virgin, you know, a fun, inspiring, imaginative brand. You know, imagine if Nike used guilt and shame to sell sneakers. You know, I mean, that, that wouldn't work. I mean, in fact, Nike has done the exact opposite. They tell these inspiring stories of people overcoming adversity to achieve greatness, 
right? Nike, through its marketing, would say, we believe greatness is within you. You can run a marathon. You can climb that mountain. So I wanted to kind of take some of those ideas into how we would message Charity Water, how we would market the organization. You know, I always like to kind of joke, the first three letters in fundraising are fun. It should be a joy. It should be fun to use our money in the service of others. It should be fun to use our time and our talents and our our resources to end needless suffering that we see uh, either around the world or, or even in our in our home community. And, you know, it's not shame-raising. It's not guilt-raising. Uh, it's not poverty-raising, right? It's fundraising. So uh, anyway, I, I think we, we tried to just do things very differently. And then the last thing I would say about the model was we believe for the work around the world, the work of actually getting people clean water in countries like Liberia or in Bangladesh or, or in Pakistan or in parts of India, it must be led by the locals in each of these countries for the work to be culturally appropriate and sustainable in the long run. So the money would actually be taken in by these local orgs who would turn it into clean water, uh, leading their communities and their countries forward. So we put together the 100% model, this idea of closing the loop and proving to people where their money went, uh, this idea of building a, a beautiful, inspiring brand, and then working with local partners. And we started. Uh, and the day one was a party in a nightclub because it was the only idea I had. And I got a club donated and I threw my 31st birthday party and I made everybody that came in the club donate $20 to Charity Water with the 100% promise. And that night we collected $15,000 and we did our first couple projects. And a couple months later, we sent the photos and the GPS coordinates and the video of clean water flowing back to those 700 people that attended the nightclub event. And we said, you did this. Uh, your $20 really mattered. And that was kind of the proof of concept um, in a nutshell. And then we just kept going from there. And the transparency piece, I've also heard you say, which is so important, that putting those cameras also meant people saw your failures when something didn't go right, when the well broke or you know whatever you were doing, that was also captured in how vulnerable you felt in that. The other thing, you know, that you did was think about kind of how we'd celebrate, right? You talked about your 31st birthday and this idea that instead of giving, you know, gifts for all of these sort of uh, milestones, that perhaps you could give money to make a difference. Yes. And I've heard you speak about one story that I'd love for you to share about a nine-year-old girl who decided to do this very thing and the impact that had on you and Charity Water. Yeah. So that birthday idea was, was again, kind of organic. And, you know, it started with a birthday party for me on my 31st. And then a year later, I said, I, I don't want to do anything at a club again. It's nobody needs to drink anymore. And there was something nice about the redemptive turn of day one of Charity Water, but I really wanted to move on kind of forever from that. And then this idea just started to to organically spread and other people started giving up their birthdays and 91-year-olds asked for $91 and, uh, you know, 26-year-olds asked for $26. And it it, it spread to, um, to a church in Seattle, another crazy story. So I went out there to thank the people for giving. And at the end of, of my talk, I talked about this birthday idea. And there was a nine-year-old girl in the audience 
who was about to have a birthday. Sorry, she was eight. Uh, her name was Rachel Beckwith, and she was about to turn nine. And she turns to her mom afterwards and says, I want to donate my ninth birthday. And, you know, parents are normally more, you know, we want our kids to have birthday. There, there's often more reservation in the parents and in the kids. And, you know, her mom says, well, really? She said, no, I want to cancel my birthday party. I don't want any gifts. And I'd like to raise $300 uh, to help people get clean water with charity water. And uh, apparently she waited in line after that talk that day to meet me, um, but the line was too long and she wound up just going home. But she did donate her birthday and she only raised $220. So she fell a little short. And I was in the Central African Republic at the time, really off the grid. I didn't have any cell service. And I remember landing at JFK after a, a 10-day trip or so, and turning on my phone, and there was a, a text from her pastor uh, saying, call me, basically. And uh, he told me that she had just been killed in a car crash. And there was a 20-car pileup. She was the only fatality. A, a tractor trailer had jackknifed and, and had crushed her in the back of, of her mom's car. And he said, you know, I, I'd, I'd like to reopen her birthday campaign and I'm going to ask everybody in my church to give $9 in her memory. And I remember climbing uh, with my wife our 72 steps to our Tribeca uh, little one-bedroom apartment at the time and um, opening up my laptop and finding her campaign, uh, seeing the $220. I remember sitting on the couch, just tears streaming down you know, my face and, and my wife's. And we donated $80 to bring her to $300, which was her goal. And then over the next couple of days, the campaign just started to explode and it, it spread beyond the church to the local Seattle community. Uh, the TV shows picked it up. The radio shows picked it up. This nine-year-old girl had canceled her birthday and, you know, wanted kids that she'd never met a world away to have clean water. And that was more important to her than gifts or celebrating with, with her friends. And uh, it started spreading across the country. It started spreading through Europe. Uh, the New York Times, Nick Kristoff wrote a column. Um, and then I'll never forget, people in Africa started donating $9, finding this story, finding this campaign. Uh, and her $220 that she raised while alive went to $1.2 million in donations as she inspired 60,000 strangers around the world to give. And, you know, it was... It was just such an incredible uh, story. You know, I, I wound up meeting her mom, I think it was the Today Show, uh, in the green room and just blurting out. I said, you need to come with me on the one-year anniversary of, of Rachel's death and we'll go to Ethiopia uh, and we'll go meet thousands of the people, thousands of the children that have clean water because of your daughter's vision, because of her, her life. And she started crying and I started crying and she said, I'd love to come. And exactly a year after her death, I was able to take uh, Rachel's mom. She had a single mom and her grandparents to Ethiopia, village to village to village to meet the tens of thousands of people that had clean water because of Rachel Beckwith. And you know, I remember in one village, Rachel's mom was named Samantha. And the, the older women in the village came down and they, they lay prostate at Samantha's feet and they were weeping uh, and mourning. And they said through a translator, they said, we, we know your pain. We, we've lost children. We know what it's like to lose children to sickness and to, to disease. But they said, your daughter's death 
has given our children life now. And we want to thank you for that. And it was, it was an amazing experience. And, and just to kind of end this story, what was so cool later, I mean, you know, we hear these kind of cliches of like the ripple effect or, you know, I don't know, the drop in the ocean or something. But a couple of years later, uh, about five years later, we went and we looked at what those donors to her campaign did afterwards. And so many of them took Rachel's lead, donated their own birthdays. They raised another $2 million. So her impact, you know, her vision of, of $300 has now turned into over $3 million. And she's helped over 100,000 people get access to clean water around the world. Uh, and, you know, that's been one of the most meaningful stories of, of, of Charity Water for me. And you think the legacy of a nine-year-old girl and how I would imagine comforting in a sense for everyone who knew and loves her. So it's such a beautiful story and thank you for sharing it. I'm curious, you know, we've talked a lot about faith and spirituality, where you are or where you stand in your faith and spirituality today. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of came back to, to faith, I guess this is, what, 17 years ago when I got on the ship. But I didn't start a religious organization. So Charity Water, you know, has no affiliation or, or ever has with, you know, with any faith. Um, you know, I guess we would be considered a, a secular organization. And I would say that my, my faith animates me. Uh, you know, it's, it's the most important thing in my life personally. And as I think about I think faith and service to me, that's how I connected. That's how I reconnected to, to faith was through, through service. And I remember reading a, a line in the, the New Testament that said, true religion is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep from being polluted by the world. And I remember thinking at the time, like, I'm over two. <laughs> I haven't done anything to, you know, help anybody less than, you know, with less resources than me. And I, you know, not only am I the most polluted person I know, uh, I pollute others for a living. I mean, I'm like a deep O for two. But I think I love the simplicity of that. And I think about my kids are four and a half and six and a half. And our family motto is how can I help? It's written on, you know, different places around the house. And you know, that's what that means to me, looking after widows and orphans. How can I be of service? How can I help? How can I use my, my privilege or my position or the money uh, that I'm able to make to, to be of service to others? And then the key from being polluted by the world is personal integrity. How can I be the most scrupulously honest person with, you know, with the highest integrity, kind of the most unpolluted person that I know how to be? And you know, that's, you know, I mean, I go to church on Sunday, you know, and, and it's funny because, you know, some, some of the biggest donors to Charity Water are, 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 you know, staunch atheists and they think I'm absolutely crazy for, you know, for praying to, to anything or anyone. But the beauty of it is they can sign up for clean water. So I get to you know, live out, I guess, my theology through my secular work. And the beauty is it's a big tent. We get to invite everybody. We get to invite Jews and Christians and Muslims and atheists and Mormons. We have people on the far end of the progressive left that love and give to charity water. We have people on the right, you know, very far on the right that would probably fight you know, about everything with, you know, another donor on the left, but all coming together, you know, under one common belief that people should have clean water. Which is so 
important and needed is that cross-section and diversity and fabric of the world to unify, right? Which is so rare today. To agree to agree, right? To it's agree. like we need more things that we can agree to agree on. Yeah. So people are very drawn to your story. You know, you've been in demand as a speaker and lots and lots of people have interviewed you. And, you know, I obviously am here today because I was drawn to your story. I'm curious why you think that people are are so drawn to your story and your life journey. You know, it's it's interesting. Um, I wrote a book and I think I was surprised at maybe how it resonated, you know, the, how, how the personal story resonated with people. What I was trying to say, or what I was, the reason I, you know, wrote 100,000 word version of it, which is called Thirst, and, you know, all the money goes to Charity Water from from the book, of course. But I I was hoping to say to people that, you know, it's never too late to change. I mean, I, all this stuff sounds so cliche, but, you know, maybe said it in an edgier way. Like if a degenerate drug-addled nightclub promoter chasing girls and the party around the world can see the error maybe of my ways or my lifestyle and want more and change and build an organization that, you know, that's helped 12 million people across 29 countries, you know, unless you've killed someone, you weren't as bad as me. (laughs) I mean, I was as bad and as degenerate and as hedonistic. Uh, You know, there was no hope for me. You could have said, you know, if you met me uh, at three in the morning, you know, at that after hours club or five in the morning at that after hours club, so it's never too late to change. And, you know, I think that story maybe gives people hope or maybe, um, maybe you know, thinking a little differently about service or purpose. I mean, I do, you know, you mentioned early on, I mean, I now have heard, because I've been at it so long, of dozens and dozens of charities that were started because someone saw me speak. So that's why I keep telling it. And, and you know, my wife is like, I can't believe you know, you're not sick of your, I'm like, I am sick of my own voice. <laughs> I Believe me, I am. But you never know. There, It's like a seed. And you never know who's going to be in the audience, who might be listening. So that's kind of how I think about it. You just have to keep showing up and telling the story truthfully. And you never know who it changes and where it lands and, and how long it might take for that that seed to to grow. Yeah, you know, I think the takeaway and the draw to you is that your personal story, I would say, gives them an example and a model of hope that change is possible and that their future can be brighter than their past, regardless of where they are. And whether that's, you know, big pain, small pain, that you transformed, right? That that you created and authored. You said that so much more succinctly. <laughs> <laughs> you authored, and I think professionally, You've used story to ignite imagination and people and as a result to create change. And and I just see your personal and your professional story do both of those things really well. And they're both impactful and different and in really positive ways. And um I'm grateful for your time today and your trust in me to to play a small part in sharing your story. And I have to tell you, this is actually a really big moment for me. I was like, it's almost an emotional moment for me. Two years ago to the week, I had a party in my backyard and we got a stage and I had my first, one of my first guests tell his story to, to everyone there. And then I stood on the stage and I said, 
I'm going to start a podcast and I will find 50 inspiring stories and I'm get $100,000 to charity along the way. And you are my 50th interview. No way. And this week we will have given away officially $100,000. And I said that publicly and intentionally, so I would follow through. And um, it's uh, 7.45 in the morning in LA in April, two years later. And I just met that goal with you. Amazing. See, that's that's incredible. It's going to be a million at some point. Yeah. <laughs> that's so cool. I'm not at your level of giving yet, but I love the work we do and the model we created. And thank you for being my 50th interview and keeping me company on this morning of reaching a goal that was uh, really important to me. So yeah, this is, a, this is an important interview. So thank you. How cool. That is so special. And... Well, I have to tell everyone who who listens because we do have like the best loyal listeners. So I end the interviews always by something I call rapid fire, which is just fun and light to, you know, fire off a few questions. And then a listener is has emailed and I agree with her because everyone's like, my producer's like, you may want to tell people why you're suddenly saying lightning round. She's like, it makes her think of of gun violence. So I just want to let everyone know I'm now saying lightning round because I certainly don't want to end an interview with you, Scott, with that connotation. So um, are you game for- And by the way, I'm bad at this. I hate this. I'm Yes, I'm, I'm game for it, but I'm just, I'm bad at this. So I never like my answers. Well, it's, it's short and um, I have faith in you. Okay, okay. All right, so we're going to end with lightning round. Best way to spend a Friday night. Uh, with my kids uh, fishing down at our pond at the farm. Favorite song? William Orbit's Adagio for Strings. Kind of the Samuel Barber piece. Best piece of advice you've ever been given? The way you do something is a lot more important than whatever that thing is. You know, basically, maybe who you are is more important than, than what you do. All about integrity. Biggest vice? Oh, craft beer. Binge-worthy show. I really like The Crown. It's so good. We're on season four, and oh. it's just so good. I just, <laughs> it's it's so, the production is amazing. The cinematography is amazing. I just, I love it. Yeah. Greatest hope for your children? Uh, that they would be kind and honest and people of high integrity. Love it all. Scott, thank you again. Where can our listeners find you, learn more about Charity Water? Yeah. Well, I should make a little pitch. So um, if if anybody's interested in learning more about Charity Water, we've actually got a film at thespring.com, thespring.com. And it's a great way to see some of the images maybe that, that I talked about. The little movie's gotten over 55 or 60 million views. And it's a great way to share our story with others as well, or, you know, help us spread the word. And uh, that actually leads to a giving community as well called The Spring, where we've got about 70,000 people now across 150 countries who give something every single month to Charity Water. So, you know, consider every listener personally invited to to learn more about The Spring and that community. Um, my wife and I are members. Uh, we get to do events, uh, both online and in person, and and it's a great way to to help. So, um, you could share the video. You could learn more. You could join us. Um, obviously, charitywater.org, but but also thespring.com is kind of uh, the landing page for that. 
And we will share all of this widely, including the film. Thank you, Scott. Congrats on $100,000. Congrats on achieving your, your vision and finding 50 stories. And I'm, I'm sure your, your listeners are, are so much more enriched and so much more inspired. And you probably also have made an impact uh, with those seeds of those 50 episodes that, that would probably astonish you, uh, if you if you really knew. I appreciate that. And um, yeah, we're going to keep going. So again, Scott, thank you for being with me on this important, personally important episode, but um, also an important conversation to share and share widely and enjoy your day. Hey, thanks so much for having me. You too. Take care. Surprise, surprise. Today's donation is not going to Charity Water, although we hope you will support them. We are, in fact, giving away our $2,000 to It Takes a Village. Scott and his wife and kids left New York City and moved to Pennsylvania during COVID. It was there that he found It Takes a Village, which is a small local nonprofit meeting the needs of the kids who are struggling in Wayne County, Pennsylvania. Scott has been helping them with fundraising advice. And today he asked us to make an all the wiser charitable donation on his behalf. It has been a long and beautiful two years with you. And while we have not met in person, I feel connected to each and every one of you listening. I want to thank you for showing up again and again, giving us your time, your ears, your heart, and rooting us on in producing and sharing this podcast. So that is a wrap for season one of All the Wiser. Tune in next week for our final episode of A Little Wiser with my producer, Erica Gerard, where I will share my favorite memories and biggest takeaways from our 50 interviews and let you know what is happening next with All the Wiser and my new business that I will be sharing with you for the very first time. Thank you. And don't forget to head on over to our website at allthewiserpodcast.com and nominate someone you know, love, and respect to be surprised with a $200 Visa gift card. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, Thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.